You can forget a lot of things, Foster Care Nation, but never forget this. You're listening to Unparalleled Studios. I see now. Foster Care Nation, listen up. This is Foster Care and Unparalleled Terminator. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason and some people you've never heard of. Okay, guys, let's just start from the obvious beginning here. You haven't heard from me in a while. Um, Our family life has been little more than crazy uh we've had death in the family we've had life we've had baptisms we've had an amazing football season we've had a soccer season our life has just gotten super busy we currently have i don't even remember the last episode you guys have heard if i had talked about it yet but we have a third one in diapers in our house right now we have a one-year-old a two-year-old and a six-month-old life has just been busy and I have not had the time to take care of my family properly and edit files and get stuff put up here. So I'm just going to go come out from the beginning and say, I am sorry. We have just disappeared off the face of the earth and not given you any explanation why, but that's what we have going on. I would love to tell you we're going to be back to regular weekly episodes. I have some in the bank ready to go. Some people have been waiting for their episode to show up for quite a while. And to those people, I apologize as well. We've just been stupid busy. And part of this journey that, that uh, we've been on is uh, I was asked to write a chapter in a book. I mentioned it here or there. I don't know if you guys have heard it, but I was asked to write a chapter in a book about the grief of child loss from a dad's perspective. And a bunch of guys did. I think there were seven authors in total. And I believe the book is ready to order. And so I wanted to put this out there. So in case any of you, number one, have been through it yourselves. Number two, would just like to to peek in on the journey of some dads who've been through some really hard stuff. Or number three, and most importantly, if you have a dad in your life who has been through something like this, who you don't know what to say to, you don't know how to handle it, this would be a great way to, you know, number one, read it yourself and uh, and begin to understand some of what they're going through. Or number two, get a copy and send it to them so that they can understand that they're not alone in this world. So this conversation was with, I believe, four of the authors. Um, We set up a time when we could get the most guys together and talk through our journey a little bit, talk through the process of writing a book and a lot of other stuff. It's kind of a long episode, but I encourage you guys, take the time, listen to it, and learn how maybe you could help someone else in your life is going through a hard time so this will come up uh, this week hopefully you guys can hear it and i'm going to work real hard at trying to get back on top of taking care of stuff because the football season is over which if those of you who have ever played little league football know that that means like three two-hour practices a week plus a game on the weekend and soccer season is only a couple two or three more weeks in the works and we'll be done with that so that's I don't know, a couple hours a week that hopefully will all free up for us a bit. 
and I'll have a little bit more room to get some things done. Thanks for being patient, guys. And uh, if you're interested, the note, or I'm sorry, the uh, the link will be down in the notes for the webpage where you can get this book. It's at myfriendlincoln.org, but I'll link the specific page in the notes. Hello, and welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey. All right, guys, we've taken a break for a while um, here on the podcast. As you all have undoubtedly noticed, we've had a lot of craziness in life. I was recently touched uh, base with somebody who um, hooked me up with a gal by the name of Dolores, and she had a project she wanted to run that um, involved dads and grief and the grief of child loss. And I believe that most all of us who are in the foster or adoptive community have dealt with either our own grief of watching kids leave, have dealt with kids who are dealing with grief of, of their parents or the bio family. Grief is a big topic. And part of what she noticed was the book that she had uh, published before, what I believe was called The Last Kiss, was a book of women's stories, ladies telling their story about their, their experience of losing a child. And the biggest piece of feedback she had was, I wish there was something for men like this. And so she started to reach out and found some people who had experienced this. And she put together a group of, uh, I think there's six of us who have all written our story. And I have four of us here today. You've got me, Jason. We've got Mike Pruitt. Mike, how you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. All right. We got Mr. Mark Pearson. Hey, Jason, everybody. Thanks for having me, too. And we've got Ian Loopy. Hello, all. Thanks for having me. Hopefully I pronounced that name correctly. The last name you did. Well done. Good, because you're the only last name I didn't hear you say yourself. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so so we have all sat down and written our story uh, of of some serious child loss grief that we've we've lived through. And we've been through some rough times together as a group. And we wanted to sit down and talk about our stories just a little bit. The book is going to be coming out here somewhere between summer and the holidays. Unfortunately, there is some shipping issues they have to deal with and some all kinds of different parts and pieces that nobody has direct control over. So we don't exactly know when it will be out. The book is available for pre-order on the site right now. It's at myfriendlincoln.org. And um, there'll be a link in the show notes to the page where you can pre-order the book. So as soon as it's available, it'll be shipped out to you. I've got a chapter in there. Mike has a chapter. Mark has a chapter and Ian has a chapter. And so we just wanted to have a quick discussion here today and discuss one of those terribly taboo topics that about things that just don't exist because those guys, we don't have feelings. We're not allowed to, we're supposed to be hard and tough and, and look like the, the big bad motorcycle guy. Right. And um, I say that if we just had a conversation about the whole, <laughs> the whole motorcycle community thing. And we just, we just don't talk about grief. We go through hard stuff in life and we tuck it away in a little box and we put it in the back of our brain and we ignore it. And we allow it to fester in the back of our brains. But the truth is, is it's real and it affects us greatly. And I, just in my own story, what I can, the way it affected me was I could not handle uh, the fact that I'd actually just lost my dad when my daughter went to the hospital sick and I never had a chance to truly grieve his, his loss. And nine months later, she passed. And I, I, my whole family was in turmoil. I never really had a lot of time to process that grief either. The only way I felt like I could, I could stand there and be the stalwart, strong tower of a, of a rock that my family needed was to 
chase alcohol every night because if I killed the feelings with alcohol, then I could survive till the next day. And that works for a very short time. It is a horrible plan and I do not recommend it for anybody. As of today, I am about a little over six and a half years since my last drink, but I, I, that was a journey and it took me a long time to understand what I was doing was just punishing myself for the grief that I felt. And so guys, how about you guys? Did you have like build any, any vices or, or step into any negative coping mechanisms that, that really just took you down the rabbit hole? I think, I think I did, you know, and it wasn't, it, it wasn't necessarily that there was a lack of a desire to grieve. It was, you know, going back to the whole dad's thing, not having, uh, n- not being able to one show emotion, but you know, my, the entirety of, of my life, I've been a paramedic and, and we were taught as, as young paramedics that, uh, there was no emotional attachment into what we did. And so, you know, leading up to, to Ryland getting sick and, and getting cancer, I was a textbook expert on how to swallow emotion and never, uh, let that emotion come out i could bury it never think about it again and just just move on so i know i know i did yeah i think similarly i i uh had was very good at at swallowing those emotions and putting them away and it came it wasn't until i started this chapter um which was about a year after my son tannin had passed that I realized that I had never really begun to process it. I'd never really begun to grieve. And at that time through the journey, you know, white claws were, were tasting good and it didn't smell like beer when I was in the hospital so I could get away with it. And suddenly drinking became my only way to feel and my only way to begin processing these emotions. But it quickly became that it was an unhealthy way of doing it. And, and the emotions I was having were not, were not my own. They were maybe exaggerated or, or false. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, uh, Ian. Uh, I, mine was a little bit different. And for me, it was more work. While my daughter Brooke was in the hospital, there was a lot of other things happening in our house. My mother-in-law had gotten cancer while my daughter was being treated for cancer. Um, I had to put my uh, my dog down, who was only five years old, because she had a form of cancer. So I'm automatically going into there's something going on in my house. Uh, and my role in my family was I was the medical person, right? Like Mike, you were talking about you're you're an EMT. I'm not an EMT. I'm a tech guy. I know IT, not EMT. So everything fell on me about what medicine, what this, what that, taking this one to the doctor while trying to deal with my daughter being sick and being in ICU and uh, things going on in the office. I had to keep my medical because they were covering everything. So after she had passed, I basically gave myself three weeks and then I went back to work. And not only did I go back to work, my boss, who was delaying his promotion, 
promoted me to the director uh, now. So now I have 45 people all reporting to me and I'm dealing with, okay, when the hell am I going to grieve? What is grieving? I don't even know what the hell anything like that is. And that was 2019. A year later, COVID happens. <laughs> and it just, it wasn't until I started um, talking about it a little bit more and uh, a good friend of mine who had lost his daughter to um, an, a car accident that it finally just like settle in and say, listen, dumbass, you need to step some, make some time to grieve. So I'm starting to share more about Brooke and my journey. And I'm honored to be here talking to you guys and to write that chapter in that book. So, but instead of alcohol, it was more of a work thing. Although, mind you, I do drink definitely a bottle of wine when I uh, get a chance to. So I'm right there with you guys on that road. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Mark, um, you brought up an interesting point is, you know, at, at my job, uh, we, I spent about nine months with our daughter being real sick. And I kept telling my telling them, hey, look, I got stuff going on and I don't know when I'm going to need time off. And when we, we were to the point because the, di the the disease that my daughter was diagnosed with, they had to fly a team into the Children's Hospital here in St. Louis out of John Hopkins University just to diagnose it. They had no idea how to how to work on it. it it's something that primarily shows up post-mortem in newborns. They knew nothing about it. So we were sitting on a lot of question marks. And I, I was just trying to keep my, my job abreast of where I'm at and what's, what's going on. And at one point, um, I, I had... One of my bosses looks me dead in the eye and she's like, well, how long are they going to keep, keep doing this? I mean, when is it time to just quit? And I'm, wow. to this day, I'm That's still, messed up. I agree to this day. I'm still working on, on, on figuring out how to forgive that and not, not come into, you know, I mean, not literally, but, but the, there's that, that piece of, of anger there that makes you go, I understand how workplace violence happens, right? Like stuff <laughs> like that, you know, I, I'm curious, did, how did that affect your jobs? Because for me, it was pretty significant dealing with stuff like that. Uh, I have a sort of similar story to Mark that, uh, so my son was diagnosed uh, July 2020, and I think it was October-ish of 21. We were still fighting. Um, I'm a behavioral specialist, so my job it requires me to go out in the field and, and help others with their mental health. And my boss saw what I was doing and actually promoted me and made me director of the company. And it was great. I was able to work from the camper we were living in. Um, we weren't able to live at home because we were too far from the children's hospital. And after a transplant, you have to be so close to the hospital. So we bought a camper. Um, it was great. I had flexibility. But then after he passed, I was met, Mark, with a similar story that I had requested two weeks for bereavement and didn't want to come back on a Monday. So asked, could I have an additional two days off? And that was not the right question. And I need you back at a hundred percent and ready to go when you do come back. And suddenly just, just all of that pressure that didn't need to be was, was flooded and, you know, never had that opportunity to grieve because these two weeks, you know, fly by. And let's be honest. It's not like I took those two weeks and sat in a chair, you know, we're, we got lawns to mow and, and these things to build and things to fix. And I still have two other kids that I need to play with and make sure they're not feeling unwanted or less than. Um, 
And so like you, Jason, yeah, it's, it's hard to not be resentful and angry in those moments. And just another emotion that I don't have good training on dealing with, you know, maybe my coping skills are appropriate. Maybe they're not. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I will preface what I was saying before with my job was extremely supportive. They gave me a ton of opportunity to use up all of my time and even then some, and they covered everything for, for Brooke and all of her care. It was more of, okay, they've done all of this. And the story I had in my head was, okay, I need to give back to them. You know, instead of, they didn't come to me and say, well, you need to get back to work. Um, that would have been, yeah, like what happened to you, Ian? That's that's just, I don't know. I probably would have quit my job if they'd said that to me. Um, but at the same token, um, it, this is one of those jobs where you don't walk away from because you get so much after like 20 years of service uh, that lasts for the rest of your life. So that was the other thing in, top, in the back of my head on top of everything else. Like you said, Ian, yeah, you got the other kids. I have two other biological children that they all grieve in very different ways. I remember I used to get upset because I didn't see my daughter crying. She was just grieving her own way, right? I don't know if that ever happened to you guys, but um, when my kids didn't cry when they heard Brooke's favorite song come on, (laughs) it's just stupid shit. But yeah, yeah, it's- It was our expectations of how they should react, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean- we were we were living in a camper and my son passed and my my oldest son was just in the other end of the camper and and didn't immediately cry right didn't didn't begin to grieve he asked what was for breakfast and can he play because in his mind he saw his little brother sleeping there in his in in his mother's yeah. arms yeah you know and at that point we've been battling cancer for 2 years he didn't know he's just going to go to the hospital for a couple of days you know this is just par for the course but we had that expectation. No, you're, I don't care if you're only four or five years old, you should be crying. You should be weeping. This should be the worst day of your life. That's what we expected. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And Mike, I'm really kind of curious on, on this for you because I've worked alongside some emergency services guys. My dad was a police officer 20 years ago in a different lifetime. I drove a tow truck and I've been on a scene of a lot of accidents and seen a lot of the things that humans aren't designed to see. Um, but and I so I, I know that I know that in your field you see lots of things like that. And you even mentioned, you know, you're trained to kind of put that stuff in a box and leave it there. You know, how how did that play out for you as you're working? I mean, you're still dealing with people in trauma every day of that. Yeah, yeah so it was Ryland <clears throat> Ryland had medullomyoblastoma. Uh, it was a brain brain tumor. It was a fifty first known case of that one. And um the children's hospital that would be local to us wouldn't treat him because they didn't have a contract with our insurance company. So they basically kicked us out and sent us to to St. Jude's. So that alluded to uh, his mom basically taking a a year of leave off of her job and me working a 48 hour shift on an ambulance. Um, And then on my four days off going up to, to Memphis to, to be there with him, I still had to maintain insurance still had to pay child support still have you know still have life doesn't stop just because cancer exists so on top of watching my child um 
battle cancer. I got to see everything that paramedics uh, see at work, car crashes, heart attacks, kids dying from SIDS, um, sick kids, sick people, just, you know, death was uh, is something that has surrounded um, my life since I've been in this, in this field. And so I feel like I got sort of a double dose of it. Um, it's worse too, when you, you do know the, the, uh, future and what, you know, is probably going to happen. They gave us a 2% chance of survival with this, um, you know, and that was really clearly demonstrated when we had his end of treatment scans. Um, they, they found another spot on his spine. They cut the time in half to come back. That was six weeks rescanned at six weeks. And from, from end of treatment to rescan at six weeks, he was covered in, in cancer from brain to spine. They told us maybe three months he died six days later. I, I was lucky in that I had a huge outpouring amount of support from, from the first responder community. And that was great up until um, people forget. Um, I don't know. I don't want to say people forget. People don't know how to talk to a parent or to deal with you know parents that have lost a child and that was good up until 6 months uh after Rylan passed and I'll never forget the day it was my it was the last time that I worked um full time on an ambulance I watched a family of 4 including a 6 week old and um 6 year old which is how old Rylan was burn in in a car accident there was nothing we could do it was engulfed um we we couldn't physically get into the car because the flame was so intense. There was nothing left. Uh, the rims were melted in half. And I remember calling my wife, who is also a paramedic and, and has been my rock through all of this, and, and telling her that I'm done. I just can't do this anymore. You can't watch your own child take his last breath and go to work and expected to not relive that same nightmare every time you go on a call. And we never knew what we were going to get. It could be somebody that has just toenail pain, you know, all the way up, up to the worst of it. Um, so I, I was blessed, but, you know, I hit that point to where people, again, they didn't forget, but they don't realize that grief is not a singular process. It's multifocal. You can go in and out of grief. And people try to move on with their lives while they expect you to move on with yours. And there's a, and, um, when I left EMS full-time, that disconnect was very obvious at where I was working. They didn't know how to handle somebody that was dealing with this much grief. I didn't know how to handle it either. So, you know, you can't fault them for not knowing how to handle it, especially in, in our line of work too. Um, but, um, it, it just being a paramedic and knowing it, it just compounded itself and made it 10 times, you know, for me, I feel like it was just 10 times worse than somebody that wouldn't know what you were doing through his entire, you know, battle with cancer. And you were just waking up every day wondering if this was going to be, you know, is this his last day? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a tough moment. I still remember the place I was, the highway was I was on. I was going across the Poplar Street Bridge over the Mississippi River when my phone rang and my wife called me and she said, "It's time to go home." And I'm gonna tell you, like I hit a brick wall. I backed up and like I rewinded and relived that moment at least once or twice because that's one of those things that I just don't think we're wired to handle. 
we're not wired to do that. And the best way I, I could, most impactful way I can explain it to people is once you've laid your hand on your child's casket, you are fundamentally changed for the rest of your life. And it's, it's a true change in who you are. And, and it's so difficult and it's all that grief comes in and, and we as men aren't supposed to feel the feelings and we, you know, we're, we're just known to be the strong guy who stands up and, and walks through it all. But then that happens and all of life is still going on around you. You know, the bills are still due as it turns out, my mortgage company does not give a damn that I'm going through the death of a child. The electric company doesn't care. You know, that you've got to still get up every day. You got to pay the bills. You, you got to go to work. Yeah. And, and honestly, I, I'm a little bit jealous that you guys got like two weeks off. I got one week and I was right back to work. And I was, I was fortunately, you know, my job, they were trying to push more work on me. They asked me if I would train a guy when I first came back. And my first thought was not no, but hell no. And then I thought, you know what? The best way for me to keep my head in the game right now is to have somebody else here that keeps my mind off of what I'm where it's at. And that poor guy, <laughs> he dealt with the most raw version of me ever. We're still friends to this day. Poor that must have been scary. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, he was convinced I was going to murder somebody with a hammer for a while <laughs> because I, I was not a healthy human, right? But life still keeps coming at you. Yeah. You know, and, and we were, we were doing all kinds of things. I mean, shortly thereafter, we ended up moving, we bought a house, we, we changed so much in our life, but we had to keep walking through that. You know, do you guys, you know, what, what about your life just, just continues continuing to go on through the hard times like that made it so difficult as the grief intertwined with your daily life? Um, if I could, one little thing that, that recurs almost daily, and it's Jason, Mike, you guys were just saying it is people, it's not that they forget, but they just don't know what to say to us. And even while we were going through the battle, I would have to tell people, like, look, I understand. I wouldn't know what to say to me either. You know, and just on a daily basis of I can't not bring up Tannen and whatever we're doing, whatever situation. And then suddenly I have to see the grief on that other person's face, you know, and I, I'm trying to handle it, but here's just a, a, a random passerby. I mean, not that random, but, oh, I'm so sorry. And, you know, just all of the things that, that come to mind when you hear of a person losing their child, they don't know what to say. And, and that's just sort of been a little extra thorn in it is that I don't want to have to help you in this situation. <laughs> just say, I'm sorry. And, and let's get back on to talk about what we're talking about. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But when, I, I, when at the end of it, I'm sorry, at the end of it, no, God. Um, we were exhausted, all of our options and all of those things, doctor tell us. And as soon as we made that public, how we were flooded with medical marijuana, doctors.com and, and sort of all of these, I'm not going to say medical marijuana is, is snake oil, but a lot of the things we were seeing was that snake oil sort of solutions and that was sort of another dagger that it, it added to my guilt that well dang maybe we didn't try everything maybe me listening to this doctor that is talking to every doctor in the country 
maybe we should have been trying this homeopathic snake oils this whole time. And, and what did I do wrong as a father now, as I'm looking at my child laying here? Yeah, because I know, I don't know about you guys, but I know I went through, through that same sort of guilt because my job is to take care of everything. As dad, I'm the guy who fixes things in my house. You got a problem, I'm the solution. Whether you want me or not, I am the solution. I, I'm the end of the problems. And, you know, when, when your child is diagnosed with hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, for some reason or other, I kind of felt like it was my job to fix it still. And even though the team of doctors, they flew a team of doctors across the country just to be able to diagnose it because they knew nothing about it. The team of doctors couldn't figure it out. I still felt guilty for not having saved my daughter. That was my job. You know, did, did you? I, thousand percent, I, Jason. Yeah. I, it, it took me, I still struggle with it to some degree, but a good, better part of um, about three and a half, four years to this January, it'd be five years since uh, we said goodbye to Brooke. And similar to both you, uh, Ian and, and Jason, like you, you're the protector, you know, you're the one that saw your child born. You're the one that held your child. You're the one that protects your child and you do everything you possibly can to keep them healthy and safe. They skin a knee, you, you, you're there to fix anything when, when Brooke was in the hospital and and while we didn't have a team of doctors flying in from across the world, I actually put out like an APB out to all the different hospitals and doctors and reached out. I put stuff on the news. I put stuff on Facebook. I paid for ads. I did everything I possibly could. And we got a ton of information. And similar to Ian, what you were talking about, the medical marijuana. I even tried that. I ended up getting Rick Simpson oil and, and tried a little bit of that and see if that would work. Right. Um, and at one point in time, the doctors were all looking at themselves and I pulled them all into a room. I say, listen, I want you to treat my daughter as she's your daughter, as she's your child. Find a way to save her. Several weeks after she passed, I am shooting myself. What did I miss? What did I forget for three and a half, four years? I would not give up on giving myself that grace that I did everything I could because you're looking at it in hindsight. You're not looking at it from where you were. And that's what makes it hard because you know a different space now. But well, trust me, I guarantee you all you guys did everything you possibly could because you're all great men. Yeah, I know that, that as, as we all walk through that grief process, I think something that is a stigma that, that we all have, have felt and dealt with is that stigma of, of a man grieving because we're not supposed to really do that much. You know, you're sad for, for five minutes and then you move on. But when you go through something like that, you, you don't get five minutes worth of grief. You know, you get a lifetime's worth of grief that you've, you've hidden and, and stuffed away that suddenly wakes up and you, you remit every bit of it comes back and it just takes up residence in, in your, in your body and in your soul for the, for 
however long it needs. How have you guys walked through that through that that grief process? Because people look at you funny. Now, I know this is a podcast, and so they can't they you know they can't really see us. But to be fair, when you see this face I've got over here standing there in the middle of grief, looking like like the big scary. I mean, I'm not a small guy. Right, six foot one, two hundred and seventy pounds, and this big shock of weird hair and a big black beard, and this guy standing there, and the the wave of grief comes over you unexpectedly in the middle of a moment, and you're standing there, tears going down your face for no obvious reason. People look at you a little funny. I think one of the troubles I've had as I said, is, is, as we've all said, it's given ourselves that time to grieve. And one of the things I've struggled with is, is identifying grief and guilt. Um, much like you're saying, Jason, in those moments, I immediately then feel guilty. You know, what, what am I looking like as I'm standing there next to my wife and my kids and, and I'm not being that provider. I'm not being that face of the family and, and all of those other things. Um, even in, even in terms of faith, um, my, my grief is very much masked by guilt right now. And, and that's. Yeah, that, uh, th- that's, that's a tough spot because I know Mark, I know you, you have other siblings. Um, I believe Ian said he did Mike, do you, do you have other kids still with you? Yeah. I have a 15 year old. So, yeah, 15 and a half. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I know the struggle. You're hoping for 18 as soon as possible. <laughs> no, you got to count his learners. Per- <laughs> yeah. Just got his learner's permit. So if you live oh, in boy. Texas and Oklahoma, stay off the roads. <laughs> hey, I have a daughter right now on a learner's permit. So add Missouri to that list. <laughs> but, you know, and we have to help our kids with that. You know, and when we walk through it, my boys had just lost their sister, the girl they grew up with. And she was, she was the oldest of the bunch. She was kind of the, the leader of the pack really. And they were kind of lost. They didn't know how to handle it. And I had no idea how to help them through that. And I think I felt a lot of that same, that same guilt you're talking about Ian, you know, because I didn't know how to lead them through that. You know, it was yeah, yeah, but the the kids. I so my oldest is six now and was four at the time of Tannen's passing. And like I said, my expectations of him how he should act were one thing, but my goodness, in these past two years, just how that six year old has taught me how to live, has taught me how to remember Tannen and and how to be okay again. I mean, every night he he prays and misses Tannen and things like that. And all oh, this yellow thing reminds me of him. Uh, but I think, yeah, just little, <laughs> I've been blessed in that I can lean on the six year old and that innocence and in some peace. That's a beautiful place to find some peace. How about you guys, Mike and Mark? How have you guys dealt with that with your other kids? <clears throat> my, my oldest, was um 
refused to leave his brother's side, especially after we, we um, you know, got the, the end of treatment scans when they found that spot pretty much up until uh, the day he got his wings. He, he, he was the epitome of stubbornness. Um, he, he was not going to be any, any further than a few minutes away from, from his younger brother. I, I think um, he understood the gravity of the situation from, a, you know, from the perspective of a 14-year-old. Um, he was not a big talker, at least to me. He, he did talk to um, his bonus mom a lot about it. Um, he still remembers him, and and he still loves him. As far as the way he processed his grief, I think it was the way that that he needed to handle it, which was by himself in in dealing and him choosing to be by his his brother's side. Basically, the last two months um, was his way of of preparing and you know also supporting his his little brother um, as well. I mean, he he didn't go to school. He, he did his work at, at home and he, he, you know, he set, set his foot in the sand and, and dug in his heels and said, you know, this is my brother and this is what I need to do, not only for, for Ryland, but for, for himself as well. So uh, we were, I, I think he's grieved in, in a healthy way. And I, you know, in, in one way, shape, form or fashion, we, we were sort of blessed with, with the way that he's been able to handle it and deal with it and, and move on. Um, I hate to say move on, but um, just deal with it um, in in everyday life. So for for us, Brooke was um, the middle child, right? So she had an older brother. His name is Kyle, and the younger sister her name is Paige. During the process of her being um, sick and us visiting the hospital. Both of them were there, um, more so Paige than Kyle, but we were also managing school at the same time. Um, but whenever we, it was either Trisha or I, Trisha's my wife, and we would take turns being at the hospital, never leaving Brooke alone. Um, the kids, we didn't realize it at the time, weren't really getting Trisha and I. They were getting pretty much a body. They weren't getting a parent. They weren't getting their their needs met. And we didn't realize this until several years later after Brooke passed through lots of lots, lots of therapy. Um, just having these conversations, now they come out and tell us that we had to grow up fast. You know, Kyle was going through junior year. And all of a sudden, Trish and I turned back to each other and like, oh, my God, Kyle has to apply to co to colleges. And Kyle turns to us and says, I already did that. I'm like, oh, my God, we missed that entire process. Because we were so involved in Brooke's care. Forget us. Our care went right out the window. It was Brooke's care. My wife's mother, who was who was sick in and out of out of the same hospital they were attached to the children's hospital, um, and on top of everything else going on, right? And then we find out that oh, well, my ten year old daughter had to grow up fast, and my sixteen year old, seventeen year old son had to grow up fast, and now they're in a much better space because now they're actually able to share 
and especially Paige. She has no problem going into what she's lost, what she misses. She grieves a little bit easier now than I think she did back then. I think it was really more of a shock. It's a shock to us all. Um, but it was very tough because we weren't really present. We weren't there for each other. So then there's that, right? There's the whole marriage aspect of things. Like, how do you get back to that after losing a child? It's like, great question. Where do you pick up? <laughs> oh my God. It, it just, it was, we still every so often look at each other and like, what are we doing? But we're there for each other. That's, that's the important thing. I was, I was a little worried about that in the beginning. Mark, you bring up a great point. The statistics don't don't stand up to give us all a lot of confidence on on how how we're going to come out of that. Families who lose a child, the the percentages of those families that end in divorce are ridiculously high. You know, I, I don't know about the rest of you guys. My my wife and I were still together and and going strong, but we've walked through we've walked through a lot of deep water together. You know, how, how did you, did, did you guys, did your marriage stand through that or, or are you, uh, did it, is there a, a secret you can, you can kind of divulge to, to how you um, walk through it? Well, we've been through a lot of shit before that even happened. Um, and we were able to stand that we stood by each other, made decisions together throughout the entire way. Um, talking to each other and don't be afraid to talk don't be afraid to cry uncontrollably like i'll be honest i'm an ugly goddamn crier man and I, when i <laughs> when i let loose forget it it's it's listen i cry at freaking hallmark commercials all right it's just what it is but at the same token we both lean on each other i cry on her she cries on me i yell punch things she gives me that space. That's why we have a uh, a punch a bag, you know. Whatever way you need to get it out, writing, talking, punching, running, whatever it is, um, for her, it's crying and and talking, and giving her that space helps her feel heard. Helps her feel like she has someone to rely on. So no 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 secret sauce no. Uh, Ancient Chinese secret, though. <laughs> oh, I, I, I've de- oh, so I, I've got the secret to this. They're about five foot six inches tall, half Italian and half Cajun. <laughs> with the stubbornness of a mule is what I was blessed with. So yeah, let me. Had it not been for for Lexi, uh, the gun was in the mouth and the trigger was pulled mm. m- many times. So mm. yeah, wow. you're blessed. Yeah, Last. it's uh, that rock is what you need. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think if if I were to identify secret sauce, it would be grieve in two ways. Uh, I think my wife and I we are still together. Fortunately, uh, I think we are coming out of some of the deep water. Not to say not more is coming, um. But she is able to grieve in the way she wants to, and I support her in that way, and, and I'm allowed to grieve in the way that I want to, and she supports that. I think the one thing that we are currently working on is still finding time to grieve together. 
because this is going to affect us differently. But at the same time, that child is here because of her and I, and that's something we never forgot as, as a marriage. Um, and I think this experience has, I don't want to speak for her, but it's caused me to be very selfish and I'll support you in the way you want to grieve, honey. But when it's my turn, you know, it's my turn, but never, Hey, let's get together and, and write down our favorite story or, Let's just watch videos together, which we do sometimes. But I, I think that's important is, is allowing each other to grieve the way you want to grieve, but also making sure there's deliberate time to grieve together as a unit. Absolutely. Well, we, that. we didn't do that well, mostly together, my wife and I, because I, you know, like I mentioned, my father just passed and then our daughter got sick and life was stupid busy and, and then I had teenage kids in the house. I didn't feel like I had the bandwidth to grieve. And so I just shoved it all in the box and it's taken me the process of writing that chapter. Really, honestly, that took me, I don't know how long it took you guys to write a chapter, but it, it took me months because there would be weeks between sessions of sitting to write. I had to be in the right yeah. head space. I had to take the time. I had to go back and put myself there in a place that I had put away in a box and intended to leave there forever. And I had to open that stupid box and, and dig that stuff out. And it was, it was a real challenge. And, and to be honest, I'm just, I'm going to bang the same drum. I bang when I talk to everybody about this kind of stuff, therapy is, is not for people who, who are weak or, or it's not for, for any wrong reasons uh, that people talk bad about a therapist. There are bad therapists. And there are therapists that are bad for you, but if you find a good one, that's as a matter of fact, earlier today, we sat and, and had our regular conversation with Dr. Tom. We do that once a month still, and it has been six, no, I'm sorry, eight years. It's been eight years since, since Arissa passed. And we, we still hold, hold some space on a monthly basis to do that because some months we don't have a whole lot going on. And it's, it's not that much, not that heavy. Some months it's ridiculous what we still are dealing with. And I had, I wanted to shift gears real quick. I have a slightly different question because I don't know any of you guys' personal spiritual beliefs, but something that I've found that has been super interesting is the supernatural aspect of all this. Because after Arisa passed, we would go, we, we would go to, to a church here local. We weren't really connected with a, a church very deeply or anything, but it was one of the big mega church type places where I could sit in the back row and when this big scary looking dude is sitting in the back row with two babies in car seats and I can sit in the back shadows and, and just it's the only place I felt like I could feel anything. I could sit in the back row and cry for an hour by myself, more or less. And um, it was interesting though, because we have a lot of kids and the time I forget exactly how old the, the, my little ones were, um, but they were, they would come home and they'd say something like, Daddy, I, I saw Rissa in, in the ce- on the ceiling t- today at church. She was on the ceiling and smiling down, and she waved at me. And weird stuff like that. You're like, wait, you are too young to be just. I, I think I think Turtle was maybe two, three years old at the time, and he's too young to be making this stuff up. He doesn't have any real influences in his life that I don't know about at that point because he was home with us. And, and over the years, we have seen so many things that you just look back and go, Hmm, that, that can't be coincidence. The other night, my wife woke up in the middle of the night and 
you have to understand she's she's a person with a lot of anxiety in her life since she's been plagued from a difficult childhood with a lot of nightmares she woke up the other night and she said she woke up and she felt a hand touch her back and just ran the hand just ran down her back and she knew it wasn't me because i was a big lump laying beside her in bed but she's like "I, i wasn't even scared like it didn't make me jump i knew it was her and i don't know how but have you guys had any experiences since since having lost your child that you that that you can only attribute to the supernatural, which is quite frankly unexplainable in my book? I I had I don't know what it's funny you asked that because I <laughs> I remember telling my wife people are going to think I'm crazy, so I I don't know. I don't know if you want to call it an out-of-body experience, a dream. I, I don't know. It was some something. And uh, I remember, uh, in a sense, leaving my body, floating up through the roof of our house, You know, being able to look down and see myself laying there. And then in a fraction of a time, I am uh, in... It's going to be hard to describe, but I'm in some place and in the center of this place, there's this large glowing orb that's like gold, very sunish sun ray. Um, There was a very golden hue to um, just the whole look of it. And uh, where I was in this, I was, uh, we were, we were slightly elevated. So as you look down sort of towards this, this, um, glowing whatever it was um you could see down that this was just almost a spiral and all of these roads led to this 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 golden um ball of energy and you looked at the energy or or i did and i knew immediately that it it was safe and happiness and love there was no negative um you know connotation towards it and uh, as i'm looking around and trying to understand exactly where i'm out or you know like what where i'm at and what's going on here comes rylan walking um sort of out of uh, what i would call like very tall sort of flowy wheat looking grass and he comes up to me um i i pick him up and he puts his head you know a forehead against mine like he did so often and instantly i knew that he was or i felt that that he was he was okay and then uh the next sort of moment or fraction of time he's walking towards this this glowing um orb and i remember looking up and seeing um people sort of floating down from the the skies around and coming to this road and walking towards um towards the center I don't know everybody's spiritual beliefs. Certainly I have my battles with God continually <laughs> uh, to accepting, to hate, to anger, to frustration. And, and even now, I don't know what I saw. Uh, I know it wasn't a dream. There's just no way. Um, and and it's funny because generally I am, I, I asked a, a minister about it and I haven't really spoken to a whole lot of people about it because I didn't want the, you know, people are going to think you're crazy because you're, you're saying that you had an out of body type experience. Um, 
And then I remember floating back down and then, you know, the next minute I'm, I'm back in bed. So, um, that's probably the closest thing I've had to, to anything like that. Ian, has your, your Mark, either one of you had any, anything along those lines? Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, no, I have not. Um, I, no, I have not in it. And maybe I'm still young in this process or, or I am very, um, faithful, you know, in, in a children's hospital, God is either really easy to see or really hard to see, depending on what you decide, I, I suppose. And, and maybe that's God telling me I need to live a good life so I can see Tannen again. But no, I, I have not had that moment just yet. Mike, I, after Mark, I, you know, I, I don't want to cut you off, but Mike, I, I would be anxious to know, you know, what were your feelings after that? Like when you woke up, it, was it peaceful or was it more sadness of having to see him again? Yeah, it was both. I mean, it was, I re, you know, um, there was a peace and stillness that I had, that I have not ever. And since I have, I have not felt again. Um, but, but also sadness because to me, and since then I have not had a dream about Ryland and I, I am absolutely ashamed of myself for that. Um, and, yeah, and I, and I, and I hate that. Yeah. And I hate that. So I, you know, it was, it was both. Um, I, I don't, it, it it affected me enough that I actually we we have an artist trying to sort of recreate this image on a on a canvas. Um, Very good for, for us. So it, it it was it was a combination of both. I have a lot of family that uh, yellow was was Tannen's favorite color, and so anytime they see a yellow butterfly or or anything like that, you know, we'll get a quick text message or hey, I just saw Tannen today. You know, and and part of me is just why haven't I seen the yellow butterfly? <laughs> what am I doing wrong? But at the same time, literally everything makes me think of him. And so the fact that I don't have that one significant thing, you know, maybe it's a good thing. Maybe it isn't. Um, but it's it certainly, it's just interesting. Yeah. Go ahead, Mark. I'm sorry. No, I'm glad you, I'm glad you asked Mike about that. Cause I was curious too. And, um, you know, it's funny you t you're talking about dreams. So for the several years after Brooke passed, I didn't dream of her. And you know, you you mentioned being ashamed. I I was angry. I'm like, what's wrong with me? Why can't I dream of my daughter? And I, I guess I just gave up on trying. Like I would sit there and look at her photo before going to bed and don't get me started with nights because nights were always the worst, right? You're laying in bed, you're all those thoughts run through your head. You should have done this, should have done that. Uh, life is awful. I want to die and everything else that goes along with that. Maybe that's probably why I didn't dream of her because I had all that baggage sitting there uh, weighing on my head and my soul. Um and then out of nowhere, I guess I just gave up trying. And maybe it was because now that I think about it, I mentioned before, it was about three and a half, four years that I finally had to give, had to forgive myself for everything happening. 
that's ironically when I started having dreams of her. And I'll I'll remember this uh, vividly, right? So one time I was just I had a dream of her and us at a beach and I could smell the ocean. I could see her clearly, but she was younger. So it was almost like a memory, but it wasn't at a beach that I'd ever been to or she'd ever been to. So I'm uh, not sure where everything came from, but I remember waking up excited, happy that I saw her. I've never seen her in a, like what I think she would look like now in a future state. I've always seen her as I remember her before she got sick. Because we all know our children's change when they're going through that, that cancer journey. Right. Um, oh yeah. And it it's so hard because those are the, like the last images on your mind. And you don't want to remember them like that. You want to remember them when they had all that life inside them, not when they're hooked up to a machine, getting that poison put through their bodies or their, Brooke went through 47 days of constant whole brain radiation and seeing that mask on her head. Um, I didn't want to have a dream like that. Unfortunately, I have never had a dream like that because that wouldn't, wouldn't be a good one. Um, but go back to your question, Jason, you know, spiritually. So I was never a true, I, I guess what you quote unquote, spiritual person do i believe in um, another entity i believe that god is in me as he's in many other people that believe um i believe in the power of prayer and self-reflection which is to me all that prayer is it's kind of like you're asking your inner self which is where the holy spirit supposedly is and i say supposedly because i don't know but it feels better than not. It gives me a little bit of hope. And I've listened to lots of friends who have very strong spiritual natures. I don't I don't believe in the whole, okay, I have to go to this particular church and follow this particular protocol to get that wafer and make me feel these things. I, that I that's not what I believe. I believe it's in it's in my heart. And that's where I believe Brooke is too. You know, Mark, I, I can't disagree with that a bit. Ian, I know we're running a little short on time. Um, one, that's okay. I just got the nod for a couple more minutes. <laughs> I, I had I had one more question before we kind of put the landing gear down here, guys. Um, what have you done uh, as a way of memorializing, you know, your, your child's passing or their life, you know, and, you know, Ian, I, like I said, I, I know you, you're kind of running a little bit short on time, but I'm, I'm curious, um, what have you done that, that memorializes who they were? So we are fortunate to have a, a little property, um, and we have a garden dedicated to them. We, I have an aunt, uh, well, my wife's aunt built a bridge that runs across a little creek. I built a, a special bridge, or uh, I'm sorry, a, a bench 
And now that we have some of these permanent structures in, wife and I have been having fun and plotting different flowers and, and things like that to be able to walk through, filled with wind chimes and all of my tree, uh, all of my kids are named after trees, and so we have all of the trees planted for them. Tannin, as in tannin bombs, we have uh, a few different styles of Christmas trees, depending on what you like. That's awesome, Mark. I know, um, I know you had started a journey a while back. Yeah, I mean, I I tried to do the um, the the podcasting, and I'm I'm certainly going to get back into it. Having this. Uh, podcast with you guys has been reminding me how much i actually enjoy talking with other people that are going through similar journeys so um there was that there was uh or is i also started a tiktok journey uh where i'm sharing my experiences with grief and how the struggle even though it's you know it's five years later right it's doesn't make a difference grief is not uh, linear it doesn't know time uh so with that i'm going to be sharing because tomorrow it would have been her 19th birthday so it's her 19th uh, heavenly birthday uh for the next um 19 days i'm going to be sharing some of the great things about brooke on that tiktok channel what's your handle there so people can find you this man's journey this man's journey. And if I remember right, the podcast was called Brooks light. That's correct. Hey, I'm getting old and I forget a lot of things, but <laughs> something today. How about you, Mike? Oh, don't give me a podium. <laughs> <laughs> so no, I aspire to, to be Mike. <laughs> uh, we, we started the Ryland strong network. Um, TikTok is Ryland Strong Network. Facebook is is Ryland Strong Network. R Y L A N Strong, just like a human is strong in the network. Um, and the website's RylandStrongNetwork.org.com. Uh, I have an IT guy, kind of, sort of, that helped me buy all that. Um, so yeah, we we started the Ryland Strong Network. A, it was going to be a memorial for for Ryland. Um, but you know, so as a father. Um, and as a family, we also, or at least I recognized that without the network support of people that we had around us, there's no way we would have gotten through this. And I don't know, and I've said this uh, in, in many, many times in, in, in other interviews, you know, I, I owe a debt that I will never be able to pay back. And so I guess in some round way, form or fashion, this is my way of trying to, to pay back that debt. So we started the Ryland Strong Network. Um, it was built of car. Uh, it started with car and motorcycle guys um, that um, wanted and needed a reason to give, you know, to, to give back. And um, you don't need to give these guys a reason to get together and show their cars and, and brag about their motorcycles. But when you do give them a, a good reason, they they tend to to get behind it. So, um, you know, we have we have three main goals. We um, support families that are um, in financial need of assistance during their battles the other one is sort of enacting and it's more behind the scenes so people don't see a whole lot of it is enacting legislation at least here in the state of texas that's going to require hospitals and insurances to work together um, meaning they can't turn you away based on your insurance um, they had told us in fact that when we were at the children's hospital in the dfw area that it would have been better if we just didn't have insurance they would have they would have treated us 
In fact, the morning they told us Ryland had cancer or what they thought the type of cancer was, they asked me to write a $250,000 check for his treatment, knowing full well that we didn't have $250,000. The third one in the place that I never envisioned us being in, and although uh, I'm glad that we're able to help uh, I'll reference back that I seem to be sort of surrounded by death is um, we found ourselves paying for funerals and not not everything in its entirety because funerals are very expensive, but helping pay for caskets, helping these families that get to the end of this treatment that are so financially broken that they don't have the means in which even to buy something as simple as a casket or they need help uh, raising money for a funeral. None of these families asked to be there. Um, and these, these battles are not only emotionally hard on these families, but financially it's a, it's a nightmare. We filed bankruptcy, um, with, with Ryland's journey. That was the, the only thing that we could do. And so had it not been for the graciousness of some of these other families and this network of people, um, we wouldn't have been able to do, to do anything. And so, um, over the last year we've, we've, We've been fortunate enough because we've been blessed with donations to the network to turn around um, and either write families a check to help with the cost of some of these funerals or have GoFundMes where uh, the money goes directly straight to the family. Like it, we never see it in essence. We we host it and start it and then everything just goes directly um, to them. So uh, our next big event is actually the end of August, August 26th. It's here in Dublin, Texas. The It's the our second annual car and motorcycle show. And it's where we get a lot of our funding to be able to help do that, um, to help these families throughout the year. So it's also been my way of grieving in a sense, I would say, cause I don't, I still don't, I can't tell you how to grieve. Uh, I, I don't know how to grieve myself. So this has been the, the network was, was created, um, because I just, I, I don't think I could live with myself if I wasn't trying to give back to those that gave so much to us during our battle. Yeah, man, I, I hear you there. My, you know, most of the people listening on this should, should know our story enough to know that we're, we're a foster and adoptive family. And I know that my daughter, let's see, at the time when she passed, we had, we had a, a two little guys staying with us as fosters. And one of them is, I'm going to get really complicated here with my wife's half sisters, half sisters, little boy. Right. And, um, she, she's, she spent a lot of time struggling with addiction and he was, he was staying with us. He was in the foster system at that point. And I know that, that her, her dying wish that she told my wife was that she said, Hey, take care little man. Promise me that you'll do everything you can to take care of him. And, you know, that's the the way that everything turned out. You know, the, the whole point of foster care is, is to reunify kids with their parents whenever possible and, and, and healthy. And, um, it didn't turn out that way for him. And he, um, we, we sometimes, I forget how long it was after that, but a few months later, um, we ended up being able to, the, to, uh, adopt him permanently. And, and, uh, he's, he's now a permanent fixture here in our family. And that's been just one of our, one of our, the way that, that we show the love that, that we have experienced is to, is to bring in kids who need that because 
quite frankly, you know, in all of our family and all of the the extended stuff on, on both my wife's side and my side, you know, there's a lot of kids who've suffered a lot through addiction and we just, you know, that that's part of who we are. We, we make space for kids who need things. And that's kind of the, the real push behind all that journey is that we have become someone who, who holds space for kids who need things. And it's, I'm not going to pretend like that's an easy journey at all. I, I, Mike, I know you mentioned some of the struggles on, on trying to get, do the nonprofit stuff and, and, and it's, it's hard, but as we look back, I think we, we can all say that it's worth it. Yep. Well, guys, I appreciate you guys offering up some of your time tonight. So we can talk about this a little bit. Um, I don't know if I've mentioned the name of the book yet, uh, but the the name of the book is going to be The Last Hug. And um, The Last Kiss is the, the book that's already out. That's the one written by mothers. The Last Hug is the one that is that is written from the dad's perspective. So anybody who's, who's interested in it, uh, there will be a link in the show notes to the webpage where you can go ahead and pre-order the book now. It should be out according to all the, the crazy back and forth between this company and that company and, and publishers and, and, and all the people involved between summertime and, and the holidays is when is the, uh, the window we've been given when it will be out. And so if you want to go out and pre-order your copy now, you'll get it as soon as it comes out, you'll get that first shipment of books. It shows up, you will get one there. So um, the link will be down in the show notes and, uh, and you guys can go order that. So, Thanks a lot, guys, for sharing your stories because this stuff is not easy for us to to walk back through. I know it's gotten Thanks easier, for- but thank you for very much for hosting this. And guys, so nice to see you guys. Yeah, likewise. This is I will be counting this as one of the first steps in my my grieving process. So I appreciate you three being here with me, and thanks for hosting. Hey guys, I appreciate your your time and your vulnerability. We'll talk to you guys soon. Take care.